everybody on Facebook. Welcome to this episode of Tales from the Heart. I am Lisa Salberg, founder and CEO of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, joined today by Dr. Harry Lever of the Cleveland Clinic. And today we are going to be discussing in some detail um, septal reduction therapy for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, myectomy or alcohol ablation typically, and when is it time to take action on your obstruction? And this is a very common question. We address it literally every day here at the HCMA. And Dr. Lever has worked for 40 years um, with this patient population. And he's going to share with us some of his insights on when, how, and what this is all about. And we're going to start with some real basics. So welcome to the program again, Dr. Lever. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very us. much. Thank and you. Let's start out with some really basic understanding. What is obstruction? Well, obstruction is when uh, the blood flow that uh, comes out of the heart is restricted, and that's because the mitral valve, which prevents blood from leaking back into the upper chamber of the heart, the left atrium, uh, the mitral valve comes across and it hits the, uh, the, the septum, that's the wall between the, the two chambers of the left and right ventricle. And when it hits, you can, uh, the, uh, the blood uh, is obstructed from getting out of the heart and sometimes it leaks backwards. So that's, it's, it's like a sail in the wind. When that sail hits the wall, it tends to obstruct. So I'm going to, for those of you who are watching, I know this is going to be a podcast as well. This is my ventricle you know, I carry it with me everywhere. It's also called my left hand. So if this is the cavity, and this is how much room you're supposed to have for blood, and this is your mitral valve that opens and closes, the mitral valve can hit the wall, and the blood can't get out here. And there are other mechanisms of obstruction, which could involve papillary muscles, which are deeper down into the hand or the into the ventricle. And there are mid-cavity obstructions. So there are different kinds of obstructions. Can you talk a little bit about mid-cavity papillary versus outflow tract? Well, let me let me just see if we can make a... Oh, maybe a slide. Maybe a slide here. Let me see if we can do this. And for the purposes of audio casting... Wait a minute. I just need to... What I need to do is share... What I, gotta I just find need to do is share your screen. screen. For purposes of podcasting, I may come in with some other language that will uh, explain the visuals that we're going to see in a second. There you go. Wait a minute. Just a minute. There it is. How's that? That's good. All right. Just let's see. Some of these may not work on this. Um, so you're not getting the full slide presentation today, ladies and gentlemen. You're getting the abridged right. version. So, so this is a normal. Can you see that? Normal heart. Normal heart. You can normal see. Normal septum. This is the papillary muscles, this here and here. This is the mitral valve, the anterior leaflet and the posterior leaflet. And this is the aorta where the blood has to go out. So if we see if this plays, some of these are old and they don't play so well on the map. Oh, there we go. So here is the mitral valve moving. It closes and the blood goes out of the heart. And then it, in this one, there's no leakage. So let's now, now we can get a thick septum with a normal mitral valve, normal papillary muscles. And this mitral valve is hitting the septum and obstructs the blood flow from getting out of the heart. And, the, and that's what we see here. So now the mitral valve, the, the, uh, the, the blood, we can see the blood leaking backwards into the left atrium a bit. And here, when the, when the mitral valve opens a little bit and, and it hits, hits the, there's my, oh, sorry. It hits the septum here. Mm-hmm. So it hit, obstructs, and then you leak. And that's, so what happens is it's a combination of, of the septum in this, the septum and the, and the mitral valve. But then you can also have a situation, let's skip ahead. Let's go ahead here where the papillary muscles can be moved into the apex of the heart instead of being on the sides. And that tends to move the mitral valve closer to the septum. And then we here we have a thick septum here. So you can, you can have, you can have 
combinations. You can have a thick septum and you can have papillary muscles that are in the wrong position with a normal mitral valve. And then we have apically displaced papillary muscles with no, th no thickening at all and still have obstruction. So there are all these different kinds of, uh, uh, and here you can have an, a long leaflet with no uh, septal hypertrophy, but the long leaflet, oh, this thing is moving. Long leaflet uh, can uh, get in the way and obstruct without any septal hypertrophy. So there are all these different sizes and shapes. And when we look at a patient, we need to know what, you know, what their anatomy, it's very important we got to know the anatomy so we know what to do. So the differentiation of anatomy is critical to determine, number one, where the obstruction is occurring at the in the outflow tract, in the mid-cavity, if the papillary muscles are involved, if the mitral valve is the driver, and by that I would say that the mitral valve is reaching back to touch the septum or is the septum reaching out to touch the mitral valve. And while it sounds chicken and egg to some people, it matters as to what therapies might work for those individuals. Is that a correct statement? That's right. Okay. You have to know the anatomy so you know what, if you have to do something invasive, what you have to do. So when we're looking at obstruction in HCM, is it always a bad thing or can it sometimes just be minimally annoying? Well, you can, you can have a situation where you have obstruction and no symptoms where we tend to find it by accident and people have no symptoms at all. And we, uh, we just tend to follow them. I usually put them on medicine if they have that, which is a beta blocker. Uh, just keep the heart rate slow and uh, and uh, try to reduce the obstruction. But um, but there are you know, there but when we see a patient who we you know if they've come in with, typically those kind of patients may have, have they on physical examination they have a heart murmur and we uh, hear that with a stethoscope and so when so the first thing we do is a resting echocardiogram to see what we see and then depending on you know we see what the anatomy looks like and. And if we're not really sure that the patient is symptom-free, we frequently do a stress test, a stress echocardiogram to see what the anatomy does when a patient stresses. And they can have <coughs> resting obstruction or they can have provocable obstruction. And, and so, and if they exercise okay and they go a long distance and they're not having trouble, then we just follow them. But then if we see that they can't do, they think they're doing all right and we do the treadmill and they're not doing all right, that's when we have to be uh, looking at things much more closely. So let's dive in here a little bit more and uh, let's talk about the one of the most common questions I face when talking to those with HCM and that is when is it time to do something invasive about this? So we take meds which are minimally invasive because obviously every Everything you take has a side effect and has a consequence long-term, but this, you have to balance that with what you're feeling, and if the medication makes you feel better, that's great. But when the medication's not working or the side effects from the medications are things that you're not happy with anymore and you're making your life smaller and smaller because you're not walking up a hill because you get short of breath or you're not going out when it's not COVID times with your friends, um, and you're saying no to social engagements or going to work every day is becoming more and more laborious and you come home and you're exhausted. These are some of the trigger points that we often talk about here at the HCMA that lead people to know it's time. Um, I want you to talk a little bit to the audience about the difference between knowing it's time versus when you're not in a high volume center of excellence care model and you show up with obstruction, and you're told that you need an emergent or an urgent myectomy. When, what should patients do if they're told they must do this right away, and they, they didn't know, and they didn't do that progression of symptoms, and all of a sudden somebody's telling them they must do this? Well, I think that the first is you need to see somebody who's used to seeing a lot of this disease and have a better idea of what needs to be done. And, you know, things that worry me a lot, one of the symptoms that worries me a lot is dizziness. Dizziness with change of position, 
or feeling like you're going to pass out. And clearly, if you do pass out, uh, that's a bad sign. Uh, one of the things that we've got to be careful about, however, is I have seen many patients who have had ICDs placed because they've passed out. Mm. And the ICD, when they, they get it, they've been, they've been, you know, that's a, think that there's a risk of sudden death. So they put the ICD in, but the patient continues to be dizzy or even continues to pass out with the ICD and it doesn't fire. And that means that the cause of the passing out is the, is the obstruction that occurs either because, you know, the mitral valve is in the way uh, and it's causing obstruction or the septum is thick and all sorts of things. And, and I've, I have, I've had a few patients, one in particular was really striking case of a guy who, who uh, passed out. Uh, he also had ventricular tachycardia and he, and, and they put an ICD in him and he continued to have symptoms. He didn't, the ICD didn't fire, but he, you know, they had seen some runs of VT, but it wasn't enough that it really would have made him go out. But he, he continued to be dizzy and even pass out. So we looked at this guy and it turned out that he had a strikingly abnormal mitral valve. He had an elongated, actually what he had is one of these, one of these uh, papillary muscles like this one was directly attached into the body of the mitral valve and it didn't and it did not, he had no septal hypertrophy. And he, he uh, and then he also had mitral valve prolapse in addition. That's where the leaflets go backwards into the left atrium. So he had mitral valve prolapse. He had an abnormal papillary muscle that was directly attached to the anterior leaflet and a septum was not hypertrophied. So we looked this guy over and it, and mind you, he still had his ICD and he was getting dizzy and it probably was never needed. And he, we ended up, when we operated on him, we, we detached a portion of this papillary muscle from the uh, mitral valve and repaired the mitral valve prolapse, never had a septomyectomy. So you need to know that anatomy very carefully to know what to do. And that's, that's you know, so that's why you got to look at the, look at these patients very carefully. And, and, and again, just because you're dizzy and just because you pass out doesn't necessarily mean you need an ICD. And you've got to look at the patient very carefully because you don't want to put one in if you really don't need it. Now, so um, good points on, on the, on the device issue and, and appropriate utilization of that amazing technology. Um, and we don't want devices in people who aren't going to use them because they can have complications and we want to minimize complications, obviously, and we want to maximize effectiveness. So having a clear assessment of why you're passing out or why you're having these symptoms is critical. Um, what do you think about community-based cardiologists making that call on their own or should they be doing this in coordination with a high-volume expert? I think that when you're thinking about an ICD, you need to be seeing one of us that deals with this all the time. I really do. It's not, and I'm not, you know, out there looking for business. We got more than we can handle, but the fact of the matter is you got to kind of have a flavor for what's going on. And you, you know, you want to know, um, you know, what's uh, you got to, you have to have seen enough of these because I've seen too many patients get ICDs that they just did not need. And, you know, I had another patient uh, striking about an 18 year old uh, uh, high school student who had no obstruction, but she was, she was feeling uh, really weak and not doing well. We put her on a treadmill. She did not have obstruction, but she dropped her blood pressure about 40 points on the treadmill. She had non-obstructive hokum. She dilated the heart on the treadmill. And we were really worried about her. When we did, we do MRI scans also to look at patients to see if they have a lot of scar. And if you've got a lot of scar in your heart, you're at risk for serious heart rhythm disturbances like ventricular tachycardia. So we put her, uh, she dropped her blood pressure. We put her uh, in the MRI instrument. She had very bad scar. I looked at this whole situation. We did not really see ventricular tachycardia, but we were really worried that she was at high risk. 
decided to put the ICD in. And within about two weeks of putting that ICD in, she had an episode of sudden death in high school. It saved her life. And I'll never forget the mother called me from the ambulance telling me she was on the way to the hospital. So it, it, you got to have a feel for what's what. You know, one treatment doesn't fit all. So let's talk about options for dealing with obstruction. So we know we can use beta blockers that don't really work great, but they can help. We know we can use Norpace, CR, preferably, uh, currently out of stock, working with Pfizer to try to make some motions there. Um, and it does great to reduce gradient. Uh, there are some side effects of the medication. We then move to invasive therapies, and then we well, come... We, there's also another class of drugs we can use. We can also use calcium channel oh, blockers. I forgot, sorry. We use, we use diltiazem mm -hmm. more frequently now than we had in the past. The other calcium channel blocker that we use is uh, verapamil. Now there's a problem with verapamil. It's also in short supply and it's only being made right now by one company that's from India and they've had a not such a good track record. So I've been patients that have been on verapamil, I've been switching them till diltiazem and using the longer acting stuff and I, uh, uh, careful about the manufacturers that I use there. And it turns out that it's not a bad drug to use. It's, there has not been a lot of data over the years about it, but, but I've had a fair amount of experience with it. And, and, and at times it does work. So that's another possibility. So but if when they fail and you come to that crossroads, we have a, we have two real mainstream choices right now. One would be surgical myectomy. And the other would be alcohol septal ablation, which is a catheter-based procedure in which alcohol is injected into the um, small, uh, for, well, I won't get into details on that one. The, it, alcohol is injected into a certain area of the septum, and it retards the muscle and gets it out of the way. And that sounds a lot easier, but can you explain the differences between which anatomies work best for which procedures? Well, first of all, if you've got a mitral valve problem, leaflets are too long, or there's something wrong with the papillary muscles or the, the, the strings, the cordy tendinii, alcohol will not work for that. Alcohol only works if you've got a thickened septum. And one of the things that we've believed over the years is it can be thick, but not too thick. If you've got a normal septal thickness is about 11 millimeters. If your septum is greater than 25 millimeters, the alcohol just isn't enough to remove enough of that. So if it, and clearly if it gets around 30 millimeters, alcohol is completely out of the question and you've got to do surgery. If you're in the range of 18 to 22, 24 millimeters, something like that, you can try alcohol, but it, it, we feel that we get long-term better results using uh, surgery than with alcohol. We've tended at the clinic at least to do alcohol septal ablation in people who are elderly and or are too sick to go to the operating room. If they have other reasons that, I mean, if they have other serious medical problems, we might not want to operate on them and try to use the alcohol. But it, 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 we think that we get better results overall with surgical myectomy than alcohol. Alcohol does work, but you've got to have the ideal candidates for it to uh, be used. And you got to remember that when you do an alcohol septal ablation, you are causing heart muscle tissue to die, and that is a heart attack. And you know, not to say that's horrible, but but you got to be careful, and you've got to know that anatomy very well before you do that. So I'm going to take a deep dive into the weeds here, and if you're looking at comparing the two, and you're worried about the need for a pacemaker, and there's a little bit of chat going on right now on Facebook about pacemakers. So if you have, well, let me explain it this way. Let me have you explain it. What is a right bundle branch and what is a left bundle branch and what are their jobs? Well, the, the right bundle is, is a, it's electrical tissue that feeds the right ventricle and the left bundle it feeds the left ventricle. Now, if what happens with an alcohol septal ablation, you tend to develop scarring in that right bundle and that causes right bundle branch block. 
surgery causes left bundle branch block. Now let's say you start out with a left bundle branch block before the alcohol septal ablation and we're gonna do an alcohol ablation on you. You're gonna need a pacemaker before we uh, probably would even put the pacemaker in before we do the alcohol ablation because you're gonna go into what we call complete heart block. That means if you had that left bundle to start with, we're gonna block the right bundle, both bundles are blocked and you're gonna have uh, complete heart block. So that means we cause an acute emergency in the cath lab where you're in complete heart block and we'd have to put a temporary pacemaker and then go to the regular uh, full pacemaker. So that's a risk. If again, um, if you, if on the other hand, you start out with a right bundle branch block uh, and uh, let's say you're gonna do surgery since we know that the left bundle is damaged with surgery we know that after surgery, if you had a right bundle to start with, we create the left bundle, you're gonna need a permanent pacemaker as well. On the other hand, when we look at patients who we do surgery on, and if there's no bundle branch block to start with, the risk of needing a permanent pacemaker is two to 3%. Our, the chances of us creating a situation where you're gonna need a permanent pacemaker, it's only- Uh-oh, we just lost Harry. You gotta keep all, all of that in, what's that? We lost you for a second there. It's back. Hello? You're back. It's okay. We just had a little glitch. Technology okay. jumped in. Yeah. So we, that's why we need to know the anatomy very well. We need to know what's going on with your electrical system before we go in there and do anything. So we have it all planned out. So we're not surprised, you know, when we get after we get through things. I'm going to talk for a quick second on two other aspects here. Number one, um, there's some experimental procedures using uh, coils to do an ablation, and then there's the mitral clip. Everybody wants to come up with a better mousetrap to, to solve obstruction. Um, we know myectomy is tried and true since Dr. Morrow, who himself had HCM, created the surgery in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, and we know alcohol ablation has been around since the 90s, which actually originated from a hypothesis on an article Barry Marin wrote about a gentleman who happened to have a small infarct in this region of the heart, which relieved his obstruction. So somebody thought, hey, maybe we can do that on purpose. Kind of a brilliant idea. But we have those two that are tried and true for a period of time, and we know the complications and we know the, the advantages what do you think about the concept of mitral clip in HCM? Well, I think you got to be very careful about that. And I, I'm, we've not had much experience doing that. I'm not too much. If you've got a thick septum and using a mitral clip, I'm not too certain that's going to work. And then, you know, you've got, I, we've just haven't done much of that with, with mitral clips. When you're doing myectomies, um, are they clipping the left atrial appendage as a matter of course these days, or not, not? Not all the time. Now, if if you have had atrial fibrillation, they, they'll we we will sometimes we'll just tie off the left atrium, or or they will put a clip or something like that. At the same time, if you've had atrial fibrillation, um, we will. Um, uh, do a, what's called a maze procedure to try to prevent that atrial fibrillation from coming back. And as a matter of fact, one of my indications for doing surgery is if you've got obstruction, either resting or provocable, and then you suddenly go into atrial fibrillation, that means the heart is straining. That means that it's putting pressure on that left atrium and it's it, it causing it to have the arrhythmia of this rapid irregular beating of the heart. So we would take care of that in the operating room at the same time. Now that's another reason what another problem with doing alcohol ablation. You it's it's you know you can do non in some non-invasive you can do ablations in the cath lab and such uh, for atrial fibrillation, but you it's another procedure that you got to do and and certainly going to the operate if we think you need surgery for the hokum then we would take care of the, the atrial fibrillation with one anesthetic and it's all done and that's the end of it. So we would prefer if you've got an arrhythmia that like atrial fibrillation that we would, we would uh, treat everything in the operating room at the same time. 
So I'm going to touch on another topic that is controversial. Um, there's a lot of that in HCM. Robotic myectomy rather than a full sternotomy, but to use the robot for surgery. Are they able to dig deep into the ventricle and go down towards the apex and resection the heart with a robotic approach? We've just we've done one or two, mainly working on the mitral valve and it's, we don't have a lot of experience, but it's something that we're starting to really look at and see what we can do with it. Because it is nicer if you didn't have to open the chest. But <coughs> there's not been a lot of experience yet. Yeah, there, there's a handful of cases where it has worked well if, if the mitral valve is the driver of the problem. Right. But if there is right. more extensive anatomy affecting the right. heart and the function, then the myectomy does seem like right. the way to go. Right. Um, Okay, so we've got a very in, very active dialogue going on on Facebook during all of this. So we're going to address your questions in just a few moments. Um, I do want to talk about um, multiple myectomies. So if somebody is young, let's say under 25 years old, and they need a myectomy, we know that there is a chance that the heart can continue to grow and that obstruction can recreate. So that is one group of people, which is generally why we like to wait until people are a little bit older to do the myectomy so we can be a one and done. But there are a number of people who have either gone to a community hospital or a local hospital, had a myectomy, and find themselves still obstructed, no resolution. Um, is that because possibly the resectioning wasn't complete enough? Or is it a combination of not complete enough and the geometry of the ventricle has changed in such a way that the obstruction still is is still consistent? Well, I think most of the time it's because the uh, myectomy wasn't uh, complete enough. And uh, we've seen a number of those cases. Uh, The ones that you worry about are young children let before puberty that, that had very severe hypertrophy and you needed to do a myectomy on them and they weren't, they hadn't gone through the growth cycle yet. That's, that's the ones who can really regrow. The ones that are older people above the age of 25 or 30, you're not gonna, it's rare that you're gonna have see a septum grow. It's just, it's, it's, it's the ones that have not gone through the growth spurt yet that we worry about that might need a second operation. Most of the other ones that need a second operation are ones that didn't have a complete myectomy to start with. Somebody asked a question. I have no idea what they're talking about, Phil. Um, Bendopenia? What? I have no Phil, I don't know what you're talking about, hon. Um, I would like to know more about bendopenia, and what does it signify after successful myectomy? I I don't know. Uh, Phil, you're going to have to clarify that one. Um, The other question that was asked from Barbara is, how much time will it take for robotics to be more useful? Would it be... Um, is it worth waiting for the procedure? And I'm going to go with a no, it's not worth waiting because it's an advance of science that is slow moving. And if you are obstructed and you have symptoms, I would strongly encourage you to take action sooner than later. Um, so, so now we're at this really important question. And I know it's a really hard one to answer. When is it time to say, yes, I'm going to do something invasive? I think when it's when this disease is interfering with your life, if you can't do what you want to do or what you need to do, then we ought to fix you. Now, uh, the other the other things that worry me is when we put you on a treadmill, you've got significant obstruction, and we see you drop your blood pressure significantly, 20 points, 30 points, uh, and you get dizzy on the treadmill. That worries me. That means that under certain circumstances, if you did more than you usually do, you could pass out. And that worries me a lot. The other thing that worries me is the development of atrial fibrillation. And I've seen patients who I've followed for years and they suddenly get into trouble with atrial fibrillation and we got to admit them to the hospital and cardiovert them. That worries me again, because that means that the heart is under strain. We're going to take a pause here and learn about some of the people who've helped make this podcast possible. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite, 
Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added. Check the updated registration information at 4hcm.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today. And let's continue the conversation. Now, where were we? Okay. So what Phil was talking about is bending over and feeling dizzy. So I think we need to be very clear about this next point. And that is, myectomy does not cure hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It removes obstruction. Alcohol septal ablation does not cure hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It limits obstruction. And you still will have symptoms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy without obstruction that are different than the symptoms that you had with obstruction. And you can have a persistent uh, dizziness upon bending, non-obstructed, you know, we have a small ventricle. We don't have a lot of room for blood. When you're putting pressure in the in the um, lower legs and you're, you're kind of crunching down or you're leaning over, you're changing your posture and you're changing your blood flow and the dynamics of that blood flow, and you're going to potentially still have symptoms. So anybody who thinks, well, I'm going to go have a myectomy or I'm going to have an alcohol ablation and I'm not going to have HCM anymore, you're wrong. You still have an abnormal heart muscle. You still have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but you have resolved your obstruction. Correct but, or incorrect? But that you can still have some symptoms, but it's very important. Let's suppose in addition to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you have hypertension. It's very important to know that you should not take what we call vasodilator types of drugs because with a small cavity and you use a vasodilator, it causes your peripheral blood vessels to dilate and that can make you dizzy also. So you got to be careful about the medicines that you use. I'm very careful about using diuretics in these patients. Not that I don't use them, but I, you know, we try to stay away from what we call angiotensin receptor blockers or ACE inhibitors that cause vasodilatation. Those are ones that I don't use very much. And you've got to be very careful with a thick heart, even and ap- even after surgery, it could make you dizzy. So some of the dizziness, again, can be from the other drugs that you're taking. So let's um, pivot a little bit here and say what's coming. So we know there's trials in Mavicampton right now, which is a myosin modulator being developed by a company called Myocardia. And for those who didn't catch the news in the past two weeks, Myocardia is in a deal with um, Bristol-Myers to be acquired for the little price of $13.1 billion. So somebody's paying attention to HCM and somebody thinks there's uh, something here. Um, we're still waiting on trial results, and we don't have all of that data yet, but um, the preliminary results look encouraging. There's currently a trial, pretty much a head-to-head. Um, we're going to be assisting in the recruitment efforts for this trial like we did in the previous ones, and we're going to be looking at myectomy versus head-to-head Mavicampton or alcohol ablation, so any kind of uh, septal reduction therapy, I should add. So... What are you thinking about this particular agent? And, you know, can you give some people some ideas on if they might, if they're thinking about myectomy now, might they want to participate in a clinical trial to learn more? What are you thinking? Well, I think, I think it might be something to try. I think we've got to understand, though, in the scheme of things, 
not many patients have taken taken the drug and we need to learn a little bit more about it. But I think before you go to the operating room, it, it might be worth a try and see how you do. And, and, and then we'll see. But it's not like uh, we have, it would be nice if it really works because it would give us a, very, a nice option to, to try. And maybe we could avoid doing surgery in some people, but we just, it's, it's a, a little bit early. And what we're doing now is we're just not giving it to people. We're studying the drug. So it's, it's in an investigational you know, area. So we're so in a phase three clinical trial, right? Uh, which means the safety uh, has been proven in at least short term. We don't have any long-term data. And we're all cautiously optimistic that this is going to be another tool for the toolbox. But I don't think our surgeons are going to be uh, no. putting their scalpels down, and I don't think our interventionalists are going to be abandoning their alcohol septal ablations because, like everything else in HCM, it's going to come down to patient selection as to who has the proper anatomy and who right. doesn't and what they may benefit from. So um, stay tuned to the HCMA for more information on that. We're going to open up to questions. If you have any, you can put them in the um, uh, comment box, and I will be reading them. I've been kind of keeping up on the conversation here. Um, so, Harry, is there anything else you want to say about the clinical trial? I don't think so. I mean, it's it. I think it's been well thought out, and we just, but we need time to see how it works. Okay. Um, Vani um, asked, could vasodilators like amlodipine cause shortness of breath and dizziness in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruction? It it can cause uh, dizziness, not you know, and in so doing make the obstruction worse and make you uh, yeah, short of breath. Absolutely, I would avoid am- drugs like amlodipine. If you're a non-obstructed, would you give the same information about amlodipine? Well, you have to, it's it, you've got to be very careful, uh, and uh, uh, I I uh, we. Truly speaking, we don't have the ideal drug to treat the blood pressure in somebody who's got a thick heart and a small cavity. And so I, I tend to use, very, if I'm going to use that uh, amlodipine or something like that, you start out with very low dose, you know, two and a half milligrams or something like that, and just see what happens and very gradually titrate the, the, um, the, the, the medication. You, you just don't just give somebody 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams of that stuff, and you've got to you know, and this raises another thing. I, I hate to always bring this up, but a lot of our drugs are in trouble because they're being made overseas. And one of the reasons why the blood pressure doesn't come under control is because the drug isn't working. So you've got to be very careful about what you're taking and and who the manufacturer is and try not to get on too many different medications. I've seen people being treated for their blood pressure with three and four drugs that they, most of which they maybe they didn't need because some of the stuff they were taking really wasn't working well. So you got to be aware of that too. Okay, so uh, watching us today is a gentleman, I believe from New Jersey, Heikam, um, if I mispronounce the name, I apologize. He's heading to a myectomy soon at NYU. Um, so he's been, he's been very active on this, on this uh, line today. Um, so he's asking what are the most side effects, what are the most common side effects, I guess, of verapamil? Well, again, it can cause dizziness and, and some vasodilatation. There, there really isn't, it can some, some slowing of your heart rate, but not a, actually it's not a, it's not a, a bad drug, but the problem we're having now is it's only being made by one manufacturer who doesn't have a good track record. So that's why I've stayed away from it. So I, I want to go back and you and I have had this conversation a lot this year specifically about drug quality. And I, I want to be... Um, a little sensitive and a little bit more explanatory on this issue. So drugs manufactured outside of the United States doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad drug. What it does mean is the notification process for the FDA to go in and inspect that facility is very different than if they were in the United States. And this is something that I don't think most Americans know. So if you are a manufacturer of a medical product in the United States, you could get a knock on your door tomorrow and the FDA could walk in and say, we're here to see what you're up to. And these are, you know, pop-up inspections similar to that of a health inspector in your local community going into a restaurant to making sure that they're keeping up with 
cleanliness habits and that it's a safe environment for you to go eat in. So when you're in the United States, the FDA can just do that. They can show up and check and make sure that your quality is good and that the production facilities are clean and all of that really important due diligence. When the company is located out of the United States and particularly within different countries, the mechanism is very different for inspection. And they can get three months notice that they're coming, which means that they can clean up house. They can make sure that they get their best batch of drugs to be presented. It's not a pop-up inspection. And there have been some problems, and there's been less than forthcoming information from some of these manufacturers overseas, specifically in India and China, about what what we're seeing, what's actually happening, how these drugs are made, and, and the, rep, uh, the reproducibility of the high-quality drug that we, we expect. So there's been some problems there. And I hope that in the future, our government takes steps to ensure that more drugs are made in the United States so we have this inspection ability, and that we can keep a closer eye so we know what we're putting into our bodies, especially those of us who have already been compromised by an underlying medical condition, we, we need to know that our drugs are working. And we deserve to have our government protect us and ensure that the quality is up there. So I jumped on I, my, my soapbox there. Well, one of the other problems right now is there are no inspectors in India or China because of the pandemic. So there's nothing being inspected. And that we, I, I noticed it last night on a, a news ticker, excuse me, a news ticker on... Uh, right before the debates were on, that out of, I think, 40 most common drugs in the United States, over half of them are heading towards shortage due to um, uh, supply chain issues. So we have some issues coming up there that we're going to have to keep a very close eye on, and I would encourage everybody to speak to their, their local legislators about the importance of high-quality drugs being made available. Um, Barbara asks a question. Could you explain when walking and getting a little pressure feeling on my upper arms, what is the cause? Also, as you get older and your shortness of breath seems to increase upon activity, is this because, oh, that's a good question, Barbara. Is this because HCM is getting worse or is it because you're getting older and is your body having a hard time dealing with the obstruction? And I think the answers to that are pretty much a yes, it's all connected, but what's going on? You want to talk about the upper arm pain? Well, you got to also be careful that there's not cor- underlying coronary artery disease. And um, about 20% of people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have coronary artery disease. Uh, the arteries actually, in many patients with Hocum, have really big arteries, but 20, at least 20% of them can develop coronary artery disease. So if they're getting chest pain or arm pain, uh, we're looking to see if they've got, particularly if they're above the age of 40 or 45, where we might do a coronary angiogram to make sure there's no artery disease. You gotta, if, if you're going to the operating room anyhow, you're going to have a coronary angiogram to absolutely be certain you don't have coronary artery disease. That'd be the worst thing is to take somebody operating room, take out a piece of muscle and miss the fact that they had um, uh, coronary artery disease. Now, this brings up one other subject that I want to mention. I've seen too many patients who were catheterized because they had chest pain and they're found to have a coronary artery obstruction and they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruction. And they've had a stent put in an artery before they anything is done to the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And clearly, if you have coronary artery disease and if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that looks like it's getting symptomatic, you do not want to have a stent. You want to have coronary bypass and myectomy at the same time, because you will be delayed going to the operating room if a stent goes in. You've got to wait a minimum of six months till that stent can kind of calm down and you don't want to be, and you, you know, you don't, you just can't go to the operating room. So that some of the symptoms uh, that are related to the hokum are, are not going to be treated with a stent. So you don't want some Body putting a stent in you unless you're absolutely in acute desperate situation uh, before you go to the operating room for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I want to talk more about this. I know we're here talking about myectomy and when to choose to go to you know invasive therapy for obstruction, but 
this has happened, no joke, four times this month, and it's not even the end of the month yet. Um, so I'm going I'm to give you a scenario, and we didn't practice this one. So somebody comes to us and says, I found out I had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because I had a heart attack. And I say, how do you know you had a heart attack? Well, I went to the hospital with chest pain. They did a cardiac cath. They found an area that was a little blocked. They put in a stent, and they told me, you also have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And then the symptoms exacerbated. Um, and within a short period of time, one individual went to surgery in under six months from their stent, which scared the hell out of me. Another one was just completely under the impression that all of the chest pain was related to these two stents that were placed, and this this obstruction was over 100 millimeters of mercury, and nobody ever told them that, you know, obstruction can cause chest pain and that HCM can cause chest pain, and they were told that they were crazy because they had their stents and they were, they were treated. Um, and another one went ahead and um, actually had, their, had an ICD already, uh, had an event, uh, a VT storm, which means their device went off multiple times in a day, in this case nearly 20. And when they got to the hospital, they said, oh, well, you know, you had this cardiac arrest. It must be because of coronary artery disease, forgetting the fact that they have a known diagnosis of HCM, they cast them after the arrest and said, oh, there's two little areas here that need stents, and they put two stents in and said, that's why you had cardiac arrest. We have some real misinformation going on out there about what HCM is, what it does, and when stenting is appropriate in HCM. And I would argue that we're probably wasting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year on unnecessary stenting and, and cardiac catheterizations in this patient population. Can you speak to this? Well, I think it's, you're absolutely right. I saw a guy, you won't believe what I'm going to tell you. Before he saw me, he had 10 stents, 10 stents. I remember him. And we needed, we needed to do a myectomy on him. And the poor guy had been through so much psychologically. It was devastating for him what he had been through and, you know, for him to get rehabbed and everything, it's been a very hard course and you just don't do things like that. You have to look deeply into what's going on with a patient and just can't look to see the first thing and think you've dealt with it. That just doesn't work. I hear you. Um, another question here, Judy, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the end of this one. Um, but I think we can help you with the beginning. Is there any way to find out if a drug is made out of the country? My Metropolol X is made by a company that claims to be in India. And then you wrote, and the Toys R Us. I, I'm, I'm not sure what Toys R Us was supposed to be, but I suspect that there was a, um, uh, a Google voice involved in that one. So just because it's made in India or China does not necessarily mean that it's bad. But you want to look at the history of the companies. And I would encourage you to go back and watch other videos that I've done with Dr. Lever and with Catherine Ebon, who wrote the book Bottle of Lies, uh, to, to learn about how to advocate for yourself and find out where your drugs are made. But, um, Harry, you want to talk about resources where people can find out where? Well, well first of all, in terms of metoprolol, I use metoprolol succinate. And the brand that I use, there's two kinds of generics. One is an authorized generic, which is actually the original formula of the drug versus the conventional generic where it's not made by the original formula. So you want, I use authorized generics and particularly for metoprolol succinate, it's a difficult drug to make. And I use the, right now I've been using the Lynette brand, which is actually made by the originating company. Some of these other companies that make the drug like I'll tell you one to stay away from absolutely is Dr. Reddy. Dr. Reddy is a very poor drug company. They had five violations last year of different drugs. Uh, they had, when the, when the FDA goes after a company, they file what's called a 483. They had five 483s in one year. And you just don't want to, you know, you don't want to use that. Um, but, um, so what, what I tend to do is, uh, first of all, if you're stable on a medicine, I tell my patients, don't let the pharmacy change the manufacturer if at all possible. If you're 
just whatever medicine you're on for whatever you're being treated, try to stay with them, same medication. That, that's particularly important for thyroid hormone uh, and uh, seizure drugs and, and, and as well as cardiac drugs. Thyroid hormone, even one name brand to another can be different. And the Endocrine Society recommends that you don't change the manufacturer. And, um, but what, 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 I tend to, what I tell patients to do is look at the manufacturers you have if there are questions particularly let's say all of a sudden your blood pressure is not under good control. You want to look at what they gave you. And what you do is you go to Google, you, you search out the, the, uh, the, the company and see if they've got violations against them. And there, you can also identify your tablets if they don't, if there's always a number on the tablet, but sometimes pharmacies aren't always putting the manufacturer on the label. And if they don't do that, then you, you go to th something called drugs.com, which has a pill identifier function in it. And you can see who you put the number in and you say what color the tablet is, what shape it is, or capsule. And, and then you can identify who the manufacturer is. So it's important to try to find that out. Okay, so we have a couple of other questions here. Um, uh, so is it, if somebody has HCM, and coronary artery disease, and they're not obstructed, and they're not heading to surgery anytime soon, is it safe for them to have stents? Yeah, if, if you have no obstruction, and you you have uh, significant coronary artery disease, yeah, I think, uh, assuming that it's a good target, yeah, you can do put a stent. Okay, so... I have inside info on one of these questions, so I'm going to make it a little bit more generalized. If you're non-obstructed, what is the role of a calcium score in those with HCM? Well, I'd actually say obstructed or non-obstructed. Is there a role for calcium scoring in HCM? Can you explain to people what calcium scores are? Well, what they do is they do a CT scan and see how much calcium you have in your arteries, and the more calcium you have, the greater the chance you will have obstruction. Uh, I, it's, Obstru it's outflow the, tract it, obstruction or coronary no, artery obstruction, coronary artery obstruction, and and you know it. I I still think if there are questions, it's probably wise to do a coronary angiogram. I mean, it doesn't give you an, the coronary the the calcium score gives you the the, the idea of a chance of how bad you know that you might have significant obstruction, but it does not necessarily mean your arteries are you know significantly obstructed. It's a higher incidence of it, but it's not like doing a coronary angiogram. Okay, so if somebody who's not obstructed can walk forever, miles, if they have not eaten, but can't walk a block after they've eaten, is there something about their HCM that could be leading to that symptom change? You may have provocable obstruction. And what happens is with exercise, if you can't go as far after you eat, what happens is the blood is diverted from the heart to the stomach, and in so doing, causes the cavity to be smaller, and you would have a greater tendency to develop obstruction. Is it also possible that in that individual, there could be some atrial fibrillation present that could lead to the shortness oh, of breath? That, that's possible, and, and, you know, that's why we put a, a longer, you know, put a monitor on them. There are monitors now that will go for two weeks or a month, and we can see what you're doing. Okay, so somebody's commenting that they're newly diagnosed, um, they're being seen by a community doctor, um, and they've had genetic testing, and they think their doctor is thorough. And to this, I'm going to point to some data that I presented to the American College of Cardiology a couple weeks ago. And that is, the average cardiologist in America has 2,000 patients. Of those 2,000 patients, approximately 10 of them will have a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Of those 10 patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there's a likelihood that there are going to be different presentations because HCM is highly diverse. So you could have a group of people that have arrhythmia burdens of the ventricle, or you could have atrial arrhythmias, or you could have some obstructed, some non-obstructed, some just mild presentation, or somebody heading to transplant out of those 10. So I would highly recommend, as soon as you can, to get evaluated by a center of excellence to make sure that your local doctor has not missed anything. All due respect to local cardiologists, they play a really important role in HCM management. 
And we want to make sure that they stay part of your life. But we also want to give them all the support that they need to do everything they can do for you. And that's giving them some expert guidance and some expert opinion by having you evaluated by a high-level center, as well as giving you the opportunity at the latest and greatest and the newest theories, treatments, and an opportunity to participate in clinical trials. So I think that's really important. Um, so let's see what else we have here. We got, you got lots of questions here. Um, Barbara, Medicaid and uh, Medicare and a supplement, F and G pay for everything involved in my ectomy operation. Um, Medicare never pays for everything. It, you know, it depends on your plan, but, um, it is a covered expense and about, I'd say about 25% of our population is on Medicare and has, you know, used a supplement and they've not had any major financial, um, problems with it. Jason, my exercise induced obstruction comes from an anomalously placed papillary muscle. Um, I don't have any real thickness. Is surgery the gold standard for this? So this is obstruction in the face of not a lot of hypertrophy originating from the papillary muscles. What would you do with that patient, Harry? Well, we've had, depends on what the anatomy looks like. And if they have a significant... uh, obstruction and it, and it looks amenable to surgery, we'd, we've operated on some of those people. Okay, I'm looking through these questions, seeing if I missed anybody. Are Dopplers and carotid start studies and labs sufficient to rule out coronary artery disease? I have a strong family history. No, no. So what, what else would they need you, to do? You need to do a stress test and see, see how that comes out, you know, or Nuclear, you know, uh, echocardi- echocardiographic stress test or a nuclear study. You know, I, you know, carotids don't help you for that. Okay. Um, rounding up some questions. Uh, Dr. Lever was my doctor who first per- prescribed metropolol. When I renewed it, it was filled with Dr. Reddy, and that's probably not a great idea. Um, so y- y- you can actually talk to your pharmacist in advance. I- I've been doing this for years and say, I prefer this manufacturer. And if you go to a private, you know, um, non-chain, independently owned pharmacy, they're a lot more likely to work with you on these issues. And I've, you know, before my transplant, my local pharmacy knew that I would use PAR, uh, was the manufacturer at that time. Um, I don't think they're doing it anymore. But, um, and then we had the, you know, uh, the uh, AstraZeneca offered the Topral Direct program, which they canceled after they sold the drug off. But, um, you know, I would try to get Lynette, if you can, and just talk to your pharmacist. If they're giving you a hard time or if it's a mail-in pharmacy, you may want to have your doctor write on the prescription. Preferred providers are, or preferred manufacturers are, and then put the list. Um, And I will make sure that that's uh, available online as well. Um, So... We have a question about a right bundle branch block. And I want to, we talked about them a little bit earlier. I want to dive in a little bit more here. In and of itself, does a right bundle branch block cause problems for patients? If they just have a naturally occurring right bundle branch or they have one created by a procedure? No. You, right bundle, some people are born with a right bundle branch block. And, and I, that by itself doesn't mean that you have other problems. There are some congenital heart diseases that sometimes you can see with, Right bundle branch block, but block by it's is not an uncommon problem, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have horrible heart disease. What about a left bundle branch block? Either naturally, left bundle branch block is a little more worrisome because it in, it's a, a bigger bundle and it affects the left ventricle, and it, it there may be, but there's still some people that you don't find anything other than the left bundle branch. You just look them, you know, look them over, do echoes, and whatever else you think is necessary and you don't find anything. There's some people that can just have some scar in the bundle and they don't have anything else. Okay. Um, any other questions here? I think we we've done well and gotten a lot of engagement today. I really appreciate everybody's comments and feedback. Um, looking to see if I've missed anything. Oh, Ryan, I think I missed yours. Um, I had a lot of atrial fibrillation after my myectomy. My septum was 3.2. Um, apparently now my left atria is a normal size. It takes care of it. So I think we need to talk a little bit here about the role of the left atria and left atrial dilation in atrial fibrillation versus a post-myectomy episode of atrial fibrillation. Um, I know that the heart doesn't like to be tickled is the way I put it. 
And when you tickle it, it comes back and kicks you with atrial fibrillation. So a post-operative AFib episode is not indicative of long-term AFib. A dilated left atria is more of an indication that we have to watch for atrial arrhythmias and it's a sign of disease progression. Right. Okay. I like when Dr. Leffer agrees with me, but we talk a lot, so we tend to agree with each other a lot. Um, okay. Uh, and we're talking about Teva brand. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap up for the day. I do have a couple of announcements to make today. Um, some are Some are happy and some are a little sad. Um, so tomorrow I encourage you all to join us here on Facebook or sign up for the Big Hearted Tour where we will be visiting Dr. Um, Lever's colleagues in Weston. We'll be me- meeting with Dr. Um, Craig Asher and David Lopez and Nick Smadira, and we will have an in-depth discussion on how they manage HCM out of Southern Florida, and I think you'll find it an informative and um and productive day. We're going to be on at noon Eastern time, and we'll wrap up at about 2.30. If you want to participate in the two-way dialogue, you will need to join uh, the meeting in the webinar. We will stream it on Facebook, but we will not take questions from Facebook. It's a different format. Um, So I encourage you to join there. (sighs) And this is the part that's kind of sad for me. Um, So Harry doesn't know I'm talking about this, but it's a staff change here at the HCMA. About four years ago, when I got um, really, really sick um, and needed a transplant, I was just about ready to hire somebody to come into the office as an intake coordinator, and I was starting to look for somebody. And then in the middle of my interviewing, landed in the hospital, got sick, and needed to find somebody who I could um, have train in my home and uh, bring them up to speed pretty quickly. And somebody that I could trust while I was not able to talk to you all. And um, an old friend from middle school hit me up on Facebook and said, I might be interested in that. And Donna came to work for us um, four years ago, uh, around now. And uh, she will be leaving us today uh, after four years of service. And we thank her very much for all of her, her time and her communication with you all. She is off to her next endeavor, which is grandmothering, and I'm a little jealous about that one. Um, but uh, we really want to thank Donna for all of her efforts and her just being there for you on the other end of the phone. We have um, you know, somebody else ready to, to be there and answer the phone for you when uh, you need it. But we want to thank Donna for her time and service and just really appreciate her stepping in. It's such a crucial time and giving me the breathing room that I needed to get somebody on board and train them and be able to go into my transplant knowing that um, there was there was some continuity. And uh, I appreciate that, and we will miss having you in the office. But you've been in my life since we were 12, so I suspect that you'll still be around. And it'll be uh, fun to go out uh, after the pandemic and have a drink and have some fun. So thank you so much, Donna, for everything. And uh, to everybody else out there who you whose lives you've touched and you've been that calming voice, I know that they share in my gratitude. Um, so that's that. Um, please join us tomorrow. Um, and I have another programming note. Next Thursday, I will be speaking with Robert Blum, a name you probably don't know, Um, He is the CEO of Cytokinetics, which is another pharmaceutical company that is working on a myosin modulator, and they have a clinical trial in HCM. So you'll be hearing a little bit more about them as this trial kicks up for them. And we're going to talk to Robert about, you know, why is Cytokinetics, a company that focuses on muscle disorders, interested in HCM, and where do they see things going? So I think it'll be a really interesting conversation, and I look forward to having you all join us and uh, participate in that conversation as well next week. So please sign up and visit us here, and it will also be part of the podcasting. So um, there we go. Thank you all so much for joining us today, and I'm going to cease the broadcast. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, and our Instagram handle is at 
four HCM Warriors. That's the number four HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4HCM.org or visit us online at our website, 4HCM.org, and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. Thank you.